welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm thrilled my guest today has joined me for another episode. Hopefully you've already listened to last week's episode where Marcy Walker, Kara Meredith, and Oshita Moore joined me for a roundtable discussion on the issues of race, friendship, and peacemaking. In that conversation, we covered a lot of ground, but we didn't dive into the stories of the individual women. So today, Kara Meredith is back to share her journey as a white woman entering into the issues of justice, race, and privilege. In our conversation today, Kara shares how she grew up in a colorless world with a colorblind rhetoric stamped across her education, worldview, and Christian theology. But all that changed when Kara met and fell in love with the son of civil rights icon, James Meredith. After she married and their family grew to include two mixed-race sons, Kara knew she would never see the world through a colorless lens again. Listen in as Kara shares her story. Kara, welcome again to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. Well, I feel just really honored to get to talk to you like twice in two weeks. So I know you have a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of demand for your time. So I appreciate you taking the time to come back on again to this podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, I, I feel like at this rate, we should probably get um, the matching BFF necklaces. You know, you can have one half and I'll have the other. And uh, I'm all for it. I mean, especially in this COVID time and moving to a new place. I'm like, yeah, if we've talked twice, sure, we're best friends, right? <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, before we dive in, let's just talk. I know you introduced yourself the last time we talked, but for people that miss that conversation. First of all, they need to go back and listen to the one that we did with Oshita and Marcy. But if they haven't listened yet, can you give me just a quick intro about, don't dive into your story, don't give like your professional intro, just your day-to-day, where you live, who you live with, and all that. Sure. Uh, So my name is Kara, first name Kara, last name Meredith. I do have um, technically two Uh, women first names as my first and last name, which is what I'm married into. Uh, But I live here in Oakland, California with my husband, James, and our two young sons, uh, Cannon and Theo. They're ages eight, um, newly minted eight, and um, a five and a half year old, almost six year old. Okay. And your home lots now in this time of COVID, you're home with two boys and we're, home. we're yeah, there, there is, uh, we've been bubbling up. Um, our County has, uh, instated something in June called social bubbles. And so okay. family were able to, uh, get together with up to 12 people, grownups and small humans to have bubbles, to create these bubbles that kids can hang out in. So we have two other families that we've been hanging out with. And, you know, literally like that's our, that's our world. We haven't, Mm -hmm. we haven't seen a whole lot of other folks since then, but all that to say, one of the families has a babysitter. So uh, the babysitter from said bubbled family has also become our twice a week babysitter. Oh, well, then that's perfect. I was going to say bummer, but no, that's perfect then. Yeah, and we're in a weird, we just moved to a new town and state, and it's like, this is the worst time ever to move and try to meet anybody. So I'm like, my two daughters, <laughs> we've just become a really close family this last year. <laughs> I mean, I do, oh, I guess I'm getting off track here, but I, I do always go, you know, I wonder if this is part of like, you know, it's a, it's part of stepping back to like the uh, 1800s homestead and um, just really digging into um, who we're supposed to be really as a small unit and as a family. 
And yet all of this in the midst of pain. And uh, I mean, I haven't thought about this too much, but I, I'm trying to see the both and of, yes, this is really hard. Uh, it's really hard that our world is so small right now. And yet also there's an explosion of growth within just our small little family yeah. unit. And this is the intention, how we're supposed to be and operate together. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think there's a lot, lot to learn in the midst of this hard, hard lessons and hard life things to learn. But with you saying that it reminds me even right now, my 11 year old is up. Part of the reason we moved is to be closer to family, but um, she's up staying with my 90 year old grandma. And it's like, she was only supposed to spend a night there. And she's with, I mean, my grandma has my aunt or my mom taking care of her, but my daughter wanted to stay another night. So she's on night three. And I'm like, under normal, normal circumstances, she would not have wanted that she would want to be at home with her friends doing her summer activities so I'm like you know what you just said rings so true that like this nuclear family that we're getting closer to knowing each other and loving each other better I think when we're close but anyway in the midst of getting on each other's nerves oh yeah there's all that too because you've got two boys I've got two girls and so I don't know. I think girls are a little more catty and argue. I think it's probably a different kind of arguing. But anyway, okay, we're totally off track, Kara. <laughs> Focus. <laughs> so last week when I talked to you with the conversation that we had with Marcy and Oshida, I just, it killed me not to be able to be like, oh gosh, I want people to know her story because it's so fascinating. And it's just amazing the journey God's taken you on and shaped you who you are today. So that's what I'm thrilled for you to talk about today and to be able to share your story. Um, you have a book called The Color of Life, A Journey Toward Love and Racial Justice that you share so much of your story. And I just want, I want folks to get that and read it because even though you're going to share a lot of your story today, there's so much more in the book just about your journey and details and heart change and history. Um, so you'll share today your story, but you're just going to skim the surface so people will still want to get your book and read. <laughs> so let's start back. I always like to start with people's childhood. So we're going to start before you even met James because you have a love story that's beautiful. But I want to start with your childhood. Um, just tell me where you were raised, were you raised in the church? I mean, I obviously know some of this because I've read your book, but I want you to tell people that don't know. Sure, absolutely. I was raised in um, the, uh, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, so in the state of Oregon, which I do also write quite a bit about as far as uh, both Oregon's history, but also its culture and or at least the culture that I experienced growing up there in the, in particular in the 80s and 90s. Um, so that was, that's kind of the world that I came from, um, a very, uh, I guess, stereotypical nuclear family of a mom and a dad and, um, a brother and a sister. And, uh, there was always at least one dog on rotation, um, which I don't think really made its way into the book, but a handful of pets. And we sat down at the dinner table every night to eat together. Uh, we were very involved in our community and in church. Uh, and we also lived in a very, um, at that time, a very white, homogenous community. Yeah, and I think that's what, just reading your childhood and your story, I'm like, oh, that's so mine too. I mean, mm -hmm. two parents, one brother, white family, we didn't really talk about race. We just didn't. Like, I did go to a high school that had um, black kids, but it was just like, I don't know. It was just not talked about. And I look back at my childhood. I'm like, we never really talked about it. It's just crazy to me now in this day and age. Um, and that was your life too. So 
Growing up, though, you also grew up in the church, and I think you did, you mentioned in your book, you noticed some things there as far as, like, what you were taught with being colorblind and that. Can you talk a little bit about that and that shaping of you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think part of it, it, it helps to understand the history, and so the 30-second the history lesson is that following the civil rights movement, um, both the educational system in the U.S. and our churches, Christian churches um, of, of the Christian tradition, um, both, not purposefully, but both adopted essentially a colorblind rhetoric and said, all right, since we got um, since we got this wrong, this being um, issues of race and racism, uh, since we got this wrong, we're going to swing the pendulum to the other side and we are not going to see race. We're not going to see color. And so really the, the messages that I received both in school and in church were, I mean, they, they were denter, they were different. I went to, a, I was in the public school system uh, and there was not a mix of church and state. It's, it's definitely not that way in, in the, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so, but, the, but there were similarities to the message. Uh, we, you know, at church, we sang, um, uh, Jesus loves the little children which I know a lot of folks have written about, um, you know, but it was also one of those that we were in a very white church and just like the school, we, we just didn't talk about it. Um, I mean, I remember in youth group, we, we had like the sex talk once a year and it was, it was kind of the same thing at school. Um, and in a way it was the same thing with race. Like, okay, we're going to have the race talk once a year, which was during the month of February, um, in which was the time in which we had to highlight um, uh, most, it was in it, really, it was a black and white conversation. We have to highlight African-American um, authors and writers and thinkers, and it was no different in the church. And so we're then going to have a guest preacher um, who's going to come in, but otherwise it, it wasn't talked about. It was, yeah. it was a, it was then an instance of white Jesus. So yeah, yeah. like I, a couple of years ago, and I'll just finish with this story, but uh, when I was writing the book, I, I spent some time in um, Salem, the state capital where I grew up and went back to the church um, that I, that I grew up in, that I spent my formative years. And I, cause I was like, am I remembering this the way correctly? Because we all have a skewed interpretation of our memories, like being a memoirist, like it's, you know, a lot of people are like, is memoir really real? Like it, cause it's all your interpretation. But I went back through and I walked the, the halls of my church and I went up to all these different hidden rooms. Like I, I went to the places that I spent um, nearly 12 years of my life. And indeed like those same pictures of white Jesus continue to hang on the walls. And um, I went up to this hidden uh, room where we used to get ready for the living nativity every year. It was also the baptism room. It had a couple of purposes, but like there in the corner, uh, lying in the corner in a wooden cradle was little white baby Jesus, <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. I mean, yeah. like the whiteness that permeated there, like, I remember, I mean, I went to seminary, um, you know, and, and it wasn't, I want to say it wasn't until like I was in seminary and or my twenties in which I realized like, and this is a point at which if I could cuss, I would, but I was like, wait, Jesus isn't, wasn't white. <laughs> I know. I'm blown. I know. I would say with me, it's probably only the last five years that that's really like sunk in. I'm like, what? Like, I mean, it's just crazy how much that has 
as a white person growing up in a white world permeated every fiber of our life and being. Mm -hmm. So with the church, I know you talk about too in your book, um, like, you know, they didn't want to bring it up. It would create division. And we still see that today that the church thinks like not all churches, of course, but I would say some predominant white churches do think like bringing that up causes division. And I mean, it's, that blows my mind because I don't know anymore how we can't bring it up. So what are your, your thoughts with that? Like the argument that it does bring division to even bring that up? Oh, I think it's ridiculous. Okay. Agree. <laughs> Maybe that's all we need to say. That's no, ridiculous. I mean, you know, it's a lot of the work that I do now. I don't, I don't work for um, a particular church. I do a lot of um, guest speaking and consultation. Um, I, uh, I spent most of my life in the evangelical tradition. I, a couple years ago, um, uh, a couple years ago, I uh, converted to the Episcopal Church, and so so I've lived in both uh, an evangelical and a Protestant world. Um, but and so my my speaking is is divided. My preaching is divided between those two communities. Um, and I would say, in particular, um, and, and this is not this is not an attack on anyone, but any one denomination and or tradition. But there are churches that continue to cling to this belief that um, we're, we're just not a justice church. We're about the heart. Like Jesus was about the heart. Uh, and I mean, I, I literally had, um, I had a, a church community that I, that I had done quite a bit of work with. And I had done quite a bit of work with them um, when I was speaking more generally, um, when I was speaking solely to women's groups and or, um, when I was working for a youth organization, I was in full-time ministry for eight years before um, switching over to writing and speaking. And um, they finally, and I had been in conversations about doing something around related to issues of race and justice. And they finally said, you know, we, we do believe that this is who Jesus is, but it's just too big of a risk. And last time we did this during a summer series, a couple of years ago, somebody threatened to leave the church. And I was like, OMG, you are worried about like someone who essentially is also a big donor leaving the church yeah. because you're going to speak about truth. And so instead you're going to just keep it easy. Like it's, it's just, this is where I, I go when it, like for me, you and I are both white. And as we, um, as we continue to step into conversations of race, because ours is a learned and not a lived experience, yeah. this is a choice. And um, it is a choice of courage. And it is a choice that is going to uh, be dangerous. Uh, and yet people are dying. Yeah. And if we can't, if, if we're going to, if we're going to continue to center the narrative or the conversation on, um, on keeping it safe, then we've missed the point. Yeah. So, I mean, like just last night, my kids and I were reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And so uh, we hit that place. Uh, we're in the very first book, uh, but we hit that place in book one in which the, the, uh, the, the not the person of Aslan, but Aslan is introduced. And um, what is he called? He's called dangerous, but good. Yeah. And, and my boys, they interrupted. My five-year-old interrupted me as I was reading um, and he was like, wait a minute, you can't be dangerous and good at the same time, mama. And I said, you know what, buddy, maybe this is something we can think about because I think maybe Aslan was dangerous and good. Yeah. 
you know, so he's then sitting there going, okay, wait, can you be? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah. And goes like just with John Lewis, I mean, the good trouble. Mm-hmm. It's like, those are the messages that we need. Or mm-hmm. Ashita talking about peacemaking versus peacekeeping. It's like, we have, Oh, we could talk the whole time about church and keeping playing it safe and fear driven. I mean, there's so much there, but I think what it comes down to as Christian women, especially like, like you said, there is life at stake here. We cannot, we cannot be playing it safe. Even as white women, we need courage and we have to stand up. Um, Okay. Let's shift gears back to your story because I want to get into your, into your love story because basically you grew up in a white world. You were involved in missions, like serving missions, but you still really didn't get it. And I would say that I can relate so much to you of like going on mission trips, serving third world countries, but I still didn't get it until I really, I mean, honestly, with the dismantling racism and systems until probably a year and a half ago. So, and it just blows my mind and I'm ashamed and embarrassed, but I know that's part of your story too, of like not getting it, but um, just appreciate the grace and your honesty in your journey. So things started shifting for you when you met a man and started falling in love. So can we fast forward to that part of your story um, of meeting James? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the crux of the story. Um, and, and even though there were certainly hints of my own journey into um, race, so to speak, that's really where it began was falling in love with my husband. Right. Um, and I love, and I'm going to interrupt and tell you, I love that you met on eHarmony. <laughs> yeah. So, so y'all if anyone is, is, is still uh, wondering whether, uh, whether online dating services can work, um, I am living proof. Okay, me too. Me too. That's why I love that of your story. And for years, I was embarrassed to admit that. We met at love at AOL 20, what, 24 years ago? We've been married 23 years. But um, yeah, so when you said that, I'm like, okay, I can own that part of my story. Dang it. (laughs) There is no shame. No shame in your game, sister. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, we, um, so we met uh, when I was 30, he was 41. Uh, so we felt a little seasoned in our, um, in our existences, but, um, yeah, James and I met, we met in the fall. I remember we were matched up in September. Uh, we went on our first date probably a month later in October within the first two weeks, we saw each other 10 out of 14 days. Wow. By November, uh, we had, you know, I was still going, I, I, I had done enough online dating by that point in which I was like. Um, so he could totally be dating other people, you know? And so by the end of November, we had this conversation of, do you, I, I'm like, do you have anybody else in your hopper? Cause I don't have anybody else in my hopper. Huh? And he's like, he's like, I do not have anybody else in my hopper and I do not intend to have anybody else in my hopper. And I was like, I looked at him and I go, James Meredith, you're planning on marrying me. Aren't you? That's so funny. And he said, yes, I am. And I, I was like, O-M-G. <laughs> so I don't think I wrote about that in the book, but um, yeah, by December, we said, I love you. Uh, by January, we went ring shopping. He proposed in March. Um, and then we were married in August. So for us, it was, it was almost a year um, of meeting, um, you know, from meeting for the first time, being matched up to getting married, standing on the altar. Uh, we, on our, on our, um, our second or our third date. Um, but literally, I think it was our, it was our third date. Uh, he sat me down and I read it. I read about this in the book, but 
we were at his house uh, and just, you know, hanging out. And he, he said, I, there's something I really want to show you. And, um, and he pulled out this stack of um, photography albums. So not just a picture scrapbook, but he pulled it out and, and he said, he said, he placed them in front of me on the coffee table. And he, he said, this is, this is my dad. He turned to a couple of earmarked photographs. And I remember he, the first one he turned to was um, a photograph of two men. And I, I looked at the picture and I'm like, your dad is Martin Luther King. <laughs> because no, my dad is the guy standing next to him. My dad is the guy he's talking to. Um, and so really, so, I mean, that it was also from the very beginning, um, it was an introduction into his family. Um, and, and his family is a, is a, I mean, it's, it's a part of this, uh, legacy. It's, I mean, his, his dad changed the world. Um, and so that for me, so yeah. I was just going to ask you, I want, I do want listeners to do some work and go look at the history of his dad and James Meredith. Cause like you, I'm like, when, when did I miss this chapter in school? Like I must've studied it for a test and forgot about it because it's amazing and fascinating how, who he was and the impact. Um, I was even reading some of it to my husband yesterday. I'm like, he was shot this many times and the picture won the Pulitzer prize, like, and just not to have known any of that. And I know you didn't either. So, but can you just tell in a nutshell, like this story, the history, just who his dad is, who your father-in-law now is and what James told you about that day? Yeah. Uh, so my father-in-law is still alive. Uh, he's one of the, um, he's one of the last living legacies of the civil rights movement. Um, and he's, he's getting up there. He's nearing 90 years old. Um, but in 62, uh, he, he was the first black man to integrate into the university of Mississippi. Uh, so that was a huge deal. Um, it involved president Kennedy, uh, and um, it involved thousands of uh, National Guard troops. And there's, I mean, there are books, entire books that are written on about it. I certainly write about it uh, in my book, um, but that's kind of the first main one, uh, main event that he's known for. And then four years later in 66, uh, he led what's called the Meredith March Against Fear. Uh, this, the Voting Rights Act um, had just passed, and yet, especially in the South and in Mississippi, where he lived then, where he lives to this day, uh, there was still a lot of fear amongst the African-American community when it came to voting. Um, and so he decided to set out for uh, just a, a march across the state. Um, he actually crossed a little, a few state lines, but a single man's march against uh, fear. And on the second day, he was shot um, by a white supremacist. And But from that, uh, King, so that's where that picture I talked about, King and Stokely Carmichael and other leaders of the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Coalition, they came in and they began to march for him. So historians consider it the last greatest march of the civil rights movement. Um, and, and also from it, that's where the black power movement birthed. So there also became divisions between a lot of the leaders. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating piece of history. And and really the message from his family, um, the greater Meredith family when I married in was, um, yes, we accept you. I was the first white woman to marry into the family. We accept you. Um, and you need to understand how James Sr. changed the world. Yeah. I put, that, I put that in my notes because um, that really struck me when you sat down with his his uncle. And it's, he said, it's not so much about you being a white woman entering this family, but it's about you realizing the impact one man's father had on the world. 
So whiteness didn't matter as much as the ignorance that accompanied it. And that was powerful, I thought, because it applies so much, not just to you, but it's like that that's kind of the problem with whiteness right now. Like it's not so much our white skin. It's just it, what it's what goes along with it, the not knowing and the ignorance and yeah. staying blind to this. So when he said that to you, what tell me what you what there's so many ways that questions I could ask you. But what did you feel when he said that to you? Pressure? Or like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a, a both. It, it was absolutely a both and. I've been sitting in this both and juxtaposition for the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was an imperative. Uh, it was um, an exhortation. It was a calling out. It was an encouragement. It was an all of the above. It was directed toward me as an individual, but it was also directed really toward everyone who looks like me. Yeah. Um, yeah toward those of us of European American descent. And I think that, you know, I mean, this is the question you, or you, you brought this up earlier, but it's, it's a privilege not to have to remember. So I, I, I sat there going when it came to um, James Meredith uh, in, and when it came to my James telling me for the first time, I remember going, who is this? Uh, and yet also going, also thinking in my head, I am sure that I studied and learned about him in uh, in advanced history classes in in middle school and in um, AP US history in high school and in all of the education classes I took in my undergraduate years um, to become a teacher. I'm sure that I studied that man and or at least heard his name and yet it's been my privilege to let his name go in one ear and out the other. It's been my privilege not to have to remember and to instead simply remember um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, and maybe that's about it. Yeah, I mean, same. That's what my thoughts reading your book. I'm like, I took I took history classes in college. How did, how did I not know this? There's so much we don't know. And that's why it's so important we do this work and start looking and reading and learning. So going back to what you just shared a little bit about your father-in-law, I really encourage people to look into that story and his legacy. And there's so many, like one of the things I was shocked um, And I'll just bring this up because I was just so like, wow, I didn't even correlate when he fought to go to the University of Mississippi as the first black man and why it was so opposed. You talk about in your book because it was a fear of tainting the white race, that if he started going there, that sexual hysteria and jealousy of the black man gripped white America since slavery, I think is one of the quotes that you shared. And it's like, I never ever thought of that correlation. So I just think this history is so important for us to see the depths and how it affects society today and where we came from. So, yeah. And it's interesting because that argument, that's the same. It was the same argument for the loving B Virginia case. Yes. I mean, really was in courts for more than a decade, but loving B Virginia was the case that eradicated, uh, you know, I mean, it it, it eradicated interracial marriage being uh, just, just or not being allowed, um, and it was this, it was the same argument. That's what the state yeah. of used was. Well, but what what happens essentially when white people and black people get together? Um, they have children, so it was the fear of the. This is not my word, but it was the fear of the spawn. Mm-hmm. It was the fear of the product of the union of what might happen. So it was it was biracial children. That was the fear. Yeah, and that's and a lot, a, that long ago. Yeah, as a as a children, as a mother of biracial, mixed race boys, 
I mean, that is heartbreaking. And that is, and, and, and I just go, oh, this is my children's, this, this, these are my children. These are our yeah. children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to when you talk about, obviously you, you told us that you got married and you have children now, but when you were dating James and you started hearing not only his father's story, but about James's story um, that he started to share with you of growing up as a black boy in the South and everything that he faced and you share in the book, comparing that to your own childhood, Talk about that a little bit and just some of what, what was most impactful for you hearing that, or how did that start to change your heart most? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin with this. Uh, I mean, I think this is where, for those of us who are white, uh, this is the invitation where we begin to realize and grapple with and wrestle with and ultimately fight against, um, systems yeah. And the systems that have so easily been laid out for, for us that we benefit from, uh, from and of no doing of our own. Um, and so my husband's story, I mean, I, I mean, I think about, and, and I mean, everything that I wrote, there's uh, writers have to get permission. Right. Uh, and so everything that I wrote, um, was written with permission. There's a whole lot that I didn't write. Um, that, that is not in there. Uh, but, but my father-in-law wrote the foreword for the book and my husband wrote the afterword for the book. And that was very purposeful that my words would be book ended by their thoughts. Um, but when it comes to my own husband's life, he, um, his has been a story of um, fighting and his has been a story of pain. Uh, and his has been a story of resilience and that has shaped him and formed him. Um, and yet also that has been, um, that that has marked him and those markings, they hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you share like entering his story and that pain now became your own pain Mm -hmm. and entering that. And I think, would you read that? I, we talked about the beginning on page 42, where you talk a little bit about that. The more I got to know James, the more stories seeped into my soul. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The more I got to know James, the more his story seeped into my soul. The more I fell in love with James, the more I realized how I'd lived in a nest of comfort, snuggled among cushions of convenience. I lived effortlessly, easily, playing it safe, both with my heart and with the hearts of those around me. Don't go too deep. Don't feel too much. Keep it on the surface. Don't let yourself feel the pain. Don't rock the boat by talking about things like race or even by noticing things like race. We don't pull the race card in this house. It was something we weren't supposed to do, not as white people and not as Christians. So once you started entering that pain and his story and it became part of yours, I guess just tell me how how you started processing and talking about it and realizing this was going to be more complicated um, and realizing you were going to have to give up some of your privilege. How did your heart change? Yeah, I mean, how did my heart change? Well, I don't know if I even realized that my heart yeah. was yeah. in the midst of it. Um, I think I began to, I, I think I began to just ask and question um, my own control of the situation. I think that, you know, I had this naive idea that, well, if we deal with something, then it'll just go away. Um, and yet this, um, this pain and this hurt, this was a part of his existence. 
Uh, and it, it, then it also made me realize this is not just him. Um, my husband has overcome so many obstacles. Um, and, and yet that is not the case for, especially for many black men in our country. One in three are, are incarcerated. Um, and, and that is, it's not then an invitation to talk about who's right and who's wrong, but it's an invitation to look at the systems yeah. Um, yeah. that are that are setting some up to succeed and some not to succeed. And in our country, these are systems that have been based on a racial, on racial hierarchy. So um, for me, it really became an invitation to dig in and um, to realize that this song wasn't about me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, it, maybe that happens to all of us. But um, I think I, again, as I, in that paragraph that I just read, I, I still thought it was all about me. And um, so it was an invitation into realizing that um, maybe there was another interpretation of history. Maybe there was another interpretation of um, relationality and I mean, just everything under the sun, like what, like it, it was flipped over. It's a lot coming at you. And it's like, that's what it's, I think, wow, like you have an instant, not instant, but in terms of maybe other white women's journeys, you were kind of, you were thrown into it when the his story became yours. One of the things you said when you just mentioned it's not about you, you also share that in your book about privilege. And this kind of, this struck me because I hadn't thought of it that way because I'm still in that realm of thinking it's about me. You say, oftentimes I think privilege is all about me, but it's not actually about me. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know in our last conversation, you talked about privilege some and that's a buzzword lately white privilege and it can get under a lot of white people's skin to hear that but can you talk just about your your comment your quote there of it's not really about me yeah I think one of and I mentioned this on last um on the podcast a couple weeks too ago too but um for me there was a clicking there was a click that happened when I read um Levi Ajaye, I think is how you say her book, uh, or her name, excuse me, when I read her book. Um, and, and that's where she laid it out. And she said privilege, and she's writing as a black woman, yeah. but she said privilege um, isn't about you. And that was exactly what it was. But privilege is about that which um, others who don't have what you have, what they don't have. That's what yeah. it's about. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, I can look at my own story and, um, and, I, and I feel like I get this so much in the conversations um, that I have around the subject, but, um, you know, in which it's uh, someone who is, is white will say, well, but I didn't grow up or but I grew up poor. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like, yes, that is valid. And also, so when we're then talking about this, we're actually not talking about uh, privilege in the sense of financial means or gain. But we're talking about um, and what would it look like for someone who is not white, though, who did not who um, who also did not grow up with money that that added layer um, of what you did not have. Because the thing is, is that even if you didn't have money, you were still born into a system that benefits you and or can ultimately benefit you that you can work toward. So I didn't have, my parents did not pay for college. Um, I, they said, if you want to go to college, it is on you. We do not have the financial means to pay for this. Um, and I think, and so I think for me, a lot of times I thought, okay, well, I I worked three jobs in college and I paid my student loans until, um, I turned 38, you know, and X, Y, and Z. And yet I can also look back on my story and I can go, Oh, but 
I, I was given the right to an education. I was given the right to apply to these schools. I, I got in. I, um, I, I continue to, and to uh, be involved in systems um, that benefited me, um, that looked mostly like me, um, and, I, and I benefited from those. So I think that's where we, when it comes to privilege, which is a hard word to grapple with, especially if we're hearing it for the first time, um, let alone a word or a phrase like white supremacy, which is over all of it when it comes to the whole system, which is really hard to think about and sometimes to say out loud for the first time, but what does it mean that the color of our skin in the country, we're talking about the context of the United States, that um, it has been set up and I have, I have been given an advantage because of my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's so many layers and dismantling there and I have to work on giving grace to people that don't get it or that still think it's not a thing. Um, and I know, I mean, you are an example of that as well. And just reading even your story that it took you a while and seeing where you are now. So I think, I think we as white people, we really, that's why knowing again, the history and understanding these terms is so important. Um, one thing that you also talk about, and I think maybe I heard you say this on a podcast, but maybe in another podcast, but just about listening. Like you say, our greatest responsibility is to listen and learn and listen some more. Mm-hmm. So as as a white person growing up in the white system, that that's not enough for me. <laughs> like I want to fix it. So I guess that's what I want to talk about is, you know, so many white people are motivated right now to get involved to help and we do want to fix it like I want action steps and that is a that's part of the white world of doing things so I guess talk a little bit about that why listening is so important and maybe what I don't know I still want to know what we should be doing mm-hmm. yeah yeah no I think um those of us who are white we are fixers those of us who are white we do want um the step-by-step thing to do um we also don't want to get it wrong we also want to be right um and I think that when and as we step into conversations of race and justice it does start with the imperative um to again, realize in, in realizing that it's not about you or us in realizing that it's not about us, that the doing is in listening and learning. Um, I, I think, and, and I don't think that being said, I don't think that that's where we're supposed to stay. Uh, there are certainly a thousand um, different viewpoints, uh, both within communities of color and within the white community, as far as who should be getting to speak on this, as far as who is allowed um, to have these conversations. Um, and, uh, and, and in that way, I think that um, we may not be able to all the way know even where we stand on that until we sit back and start taking some notes and start um, and and start letting it in. But as far as the doing, um, maybe the doing means um, being real brave for the first time, because I, and I know this is a big deal, but posting on social media, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I've had, I've gotten so many DMs from people and emails who have just said, you know, I'm, I'm finally coming into this conversation and I know it's, it's really hard, but they're scared. They're scared to offend people. They're scared to make people feel uncomfortable. They're scared to pull the race card. And yet all of this is being held in juxtaposition against the truth 
that people are dying. And so the longer that we don't speak out, the longer people are going to continue to die because we're not then actually bringing change into systems. Um, so what does it mean when you speak out then? Well, maybe it means saying, you know what, like I'm, I'm just entering into this journey. Maybe it means saying this is where I am and I'm, I'm just, I'm listening for the first time. Maybe it means pointing to a handful of authors and thinkers of color that have changed you and, or that are changing you that you are digging into. Um, maybe it means, uh, making this not about you and not centering your own feelings. Um, but instead saying, uh, again, like I, this is like, we, this is about all of us. And this is, um, about those who have not benefited from the same systems. So, I mean, I think there is a do, uh, that we can, that, that we can be doing, um, we can be partnering with um, different people of color. Uh, we can, um, yeah, we can be noticing. I mean, there's, so we can be signing petitions. Yeah. Um, we can be giving money. Uh, we get, there's so many things we can so do. That's good. I mean, those are some good tangible dues for those, those that want to yeah. check off lists because I think like, you know, you started out talking about the reading or the posting, but I don't think we're supposed to stay in those places. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Like, okay, I've been brave. I've been bad avoid. Of, but it's like I've, I've but I feel like now I'm in like okay I need some action steps so I think that's that's good to at least say some of those things um, because it is hard when you hear a lot of different educators saying that you know white voices shouldn't be talking about it or shouldn't be doing the educating or it's not enough just to be reading so it's hard and we are afraid to get it wrong mm -hmm. and that's why I do appreciate your honesty because you've gotten it long wrong in your journey too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I still do. <laughs> I mean, I think perfect. Like, I'm still saying sorry. Um, and yet I am doing something and I'm learning right. and I'm changing and I'm receiving hard conversations um, and I'm taking steps forward. Right. right. And something that I want to ask, and I hope this doesn't come across wrong, so tell me if it does, but it's on my mind um, as I'm reading your book and thinking about you and our conversation. So you, you've entered full steam in, in this journey, talking about anti-racism, but you married a black man and you have two kids that are uh, mixed race. So I'm a white woman married to a white man with white kids. Do you think you would have entered this had you not like now, now you're in it because you love people that are in it. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm in it too, but you're really in it because of life circumstances. Do you think you would still be had you not, not met the man you married? I mean, I can say I hope I would. I know. I mean, it's like, I, I, ho I know that's a really arbitrary and maybe I'm just, you know what, maybe I'm getting at is, why? Why should we get in it if, if we don't really? Mm. And maybe that's what the root of it is. Like talking to white women that don't even have the loved ones in the game. Why? Why should we get in it? Why? Because the, these are our children and um, all of our children. And I mean, I'm getting I'm getting teary just thinking about this. But we have the opportunity to step beyond ourselves and we have the opportunity to to realize and to embrace the embodiment of god's kingdom and part of that is realizing that not all of our children 
and not all of our family and our community. If we're talking about um, the whole of the U.S., the whole of humanity, the whole of the people of God and the kingdom of the church, the whole has not been honored. And so I talk about my kids, but I'm talking about all of our kids. And until all of our kids thrive, none of our kids are going to thrive. There's the, you know, there's a quote that's been said in a thousand different ways by a thousand different authors. Most people attribute it to poet, uh, Jewish poet, Emma Lazarus. And a hundred years ago, she said, none are free until all are free. None are free until all are free. And so the wake up call, whether uh, you're in an interracial marriage, whether you've got mixed race kids, uh, whether, or whether you're not, is to realize um, the all of this. Yeah. And so do you care about the all? Yeah. And this podcast, I mean, it is, it is a Christian podcast for Jesus followers. And I mean, that's what, that's what motivates me and why I care and what my daughters to care. And it was so profound in your book when you talked about seeing the image of God in all of these people. And I think that's what it comes down to. Like we are all made in God's image and he's yeah. there. And how do we not care? This is the oppression and injustice right now that's in our face. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like not caring is just really a slap in the face to God and what Jesus wanted. So, yeah. And I guess that's that's what drives my passion now. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is like wanting people to care that yeah. maybe think they don't need to care mm-hmm. um, or maybe think it's like, I just don't want to be political. Like that is such... It's beyond that. It's not that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the passion I'm trying to get at, I guess, with that question, Kara. Going back to raising kids. So you are raising, you're raising two boys that are not white, and that's a hard place to be today. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit. I know we don't have a ton of time, but just that world that you're in right now. I mean, that's scary. That can be driven by fear. Like, what do you say to other other parents raising boys, especially that aren't white? How are you, how are you handling that and not being driven by fear? Or what did, maybe advice do you have? Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that I do now is around um, partnering with other friends and colleagues of color to equip people, um, uh, parents and caregivers to talk to kids about race. Um, And so I could certainly go through my presentation or our presentation with you. But um, what I say to all parents is just start now. So Jamar Tisby, uh, he's a friend. He's the author of The Color of Compromise, which is specifically about racism in the uh, the church, the history of racism in the church. Um, And he says that we are um, to talk about it early, often, and honestly. Uh, So kids, studies show that kids as young as six months old can make uh, preferences based on a photograph of um, of photographs of different um, uh, um, like caregivers based on what they look like. They can make preferences as young as six months old um, when it comes to uh, racial norms. And so if, if our kids are seeing that so young, what does it mean to have conversations now? So regardless, again, of whether folks are raising white kids or kids of color, it's a matter of entering in. And it's a matter of talking about it. Um, we talk about it every day. And most of the time, that's my kids. It's my boys who are bringing it up. Um, but when it comes specifically to the conversation of boys, and I do write about this a bit in my book, 
But um, there's there's a belief that um, young brown boys cannot be young brown boys, but there's an expectation that they will um, will be or are men. And so they're treated differently. And that's going all the way back again to those systems. And so then when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, um, how it is disproportionately affecting our young brown and black boys. That, that's what we're really digging into. But what does it mean for me? It means honoring um, the particularities of my uh, children's, of my boys' um, personhoods. It means honoring their um, their uh, African-American heritage. It means honoring their European-American heritage. It means embracing these conversations. It means reading books that feature diverse characters, um, so just as we just just as we're now reading the Chronicles of Narnia, um, as I highlighted on the last episode, we just finished the book. We love reading chapter books together. Uh, so we just finished a book called The Season of Sticks, Sticks Malone by Kikla Magoon, which featured a cast almost exclusively of um, African American characters, and it was it was not a huge part of the book, but it was talked about, and um, my boys absorbed that, and it matters to them. Yeah. So, yeah, I could talk about this for hours. I know. I know you could. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to have you like Marcy. Can you be a monthly guest as well? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, what you just said, because like I've said before, I'm raising two white girls, but that doesn't make it any less important to not talk about race, to be reading books where there's black and brown characters. And that is a mom, like going back to wanting those to do steps. Like, I think that's one of them as parents or moms raising no matter what color your children are to be telling the stories, talking about race. And I would say only in the last couple of years, I'm realizing that. I mean, I have a 17 year old that's so passionate. I mean, she's been to the Black Lives Matter protest. So it is a it is talked about all the time in our house, almost to the point where I wonder with my 11 year old, like it's too much. But I think that's where we have to be. And that's what I plead is for other white moms raising white kids like this needs to be talked about. The characters in their books need to be other color. This needs, and I just appreciate so much you saying that and your passion for it. Do you have, people could find your any of your parenting lectures online or, or your speech, like how, how can people connect with you if they want to listen to more about your parenting advice? Because I know you do that. Well, if they really want to connect, they can hire me. <laughs> so. Okay. <laughs> I don't think there's actually in this realm, I don't think there's any free information that's out there. Uh, but um, I would, I mean, I'm always happy to connect. Most of the, uh, that which happens in that realm um, is for different um, nonprofit and okay. corporations. So, but I'm all, I love connecting in general. Um, and I can also recommend so many different resources, places to get started, uh, tolerance.org, Teaching Tolerance. Embrace Race is a phenomenal organization. Uh, the Sesame Foundation or the Sesame Workshop, um, especially for parents of younger kids, they have, I mean, they've been leading the charge since the 70s. So much, they've got so much there. And so in answer to your question, it's a both and of Google it and connect with me. So um, Google one of those places that I just mentioned. Uh, you're welcome to reach out to me though, through my website, karameredith.org. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Kara Meredith Writes. 
And then I'm on Twitter at caremax 54 Okay. And we will list, I'll get from you what the places that you recommend that folks check out to, to go there. And then I know we talked about in the last show, but your book, we will link that up. One thing that you mentioned in the last show that we didn't have time to talk about was you talked about the proceeds of people order the book right from your website. Mm-hmm. It goes to benefit the Swan Project. And I didn't know what that was when you mentioned it, but I've looked it up since. Can you tell folks what that is? Because that's another action step that if folks want to help out in this realm, they can. So talk a little about the pro- that project. Absolutely. So um, right now, partially because I have so many books left over from canceled events in the spring due to the Rona. Um, <laughs> we, I have a bunch of books that I'm trying to get rid of. And so I actually, this is that, this actually came from Marcy, from our dear friend, Mar- Marcy Alvis Walker. Right now, if you head to my website, caramerith.org, you can purchase a book from there. It's a little more expensive than what you would find on Amazon, but a hundred percent of proceeds from the book go to the Swan Dreams Project. And the Swan Dreams Project, it's from creator and former ballerina, Aisha, uh, I believe her name is. And basically she's a, she's a black ballerina ballerina and she challenges stereotypes of um, certainly of young black girls but of black of, of ballerinas as well so she's a phenomenal follow so if you just go to uh, the Swan Dreams project on Instagram but she posts beautiful pictures um, in which literally like she's in her leotard and her fluffy ballet outfit I don't have girls and I mean stereotypically speaking our boys did not embrace ballet she posts these pictures in which she goes all over to all these different mostly urban neighborhoods and she teaches young girls um young black girls in particular um and she's transforming the narrative so it's a lot of her own work um her history but also present tense and so that being said 100 percent of proceeds um from books sold on my website just my website uh will go toward aisha's work Okay, that's perfect. And we we linked it all up last conversation, but we'll link it up again and encourage folks to go buy the book from your website and to check out the Slum Dreams Project and to check out all of your work and your blog. And you've done past podcasts with Oshita. And so we'll link it all up. Okay, Kara, because I think you have you have so much to say and I got to about half of what I wanted to talk about, but it was all, <laughs> but it was all so good. And I want to stick to the time frame here today. So thank you. Thank you for all your wisdom and just being so honest and sharing your story and your journey with us. Thank you, my friend. It's an honor. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope Kara's story has served as an invitation for you to dive deeper into conversations of justice, race, and privilege in your own life and with your children. Kara's book, The Color of Life, and all the links she mentioned in our conversation can be found at this episode's website at herstoryspeaks.com.